Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing dissolving the ego. Ego serves no purpose. This is chapter 16 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is in the Words of the Buddha book series. In this class, we're going to be explaining what is the ego, the difficulty that it causes in our life, and how to dissolve it. Because in order to reach to enlightenment, a practitioner would need to eliminate or dissolve the ego. You would not be able to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy as long as the ego is still present in the mind. And it's not until we eradicate this until the mind will then gradually awaken along with eradicating all the other fetters, helping the mind to realize this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. In order to eradicate or eliminate or dissolve the ego, you need to know what it is. You need to know some of the difficulties that because of this ego that you experience. And then we're going to spend a good deal of this class talking about how to actually eradicate it or dissolve it. As we go, if you have any questions whatsoever, you can put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and be sure that your questions get asked during the class. And in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions. And I'll be sure to stop at different times to be sure to ask questions, but as you have them, you can just put them right into the comment section and our moderators will see that. So thank you for joining, really pleased that you're here. Let's go ahead and move right into the class and start sharing what is the ego. The ego is essentially a collection of experiences from our past and any expectations we have of ourselves for the future. We accumulate these various thoughts, ideas, perceptions that we have about ourselves, our self-image, our self-identity. Oftentimes there's arrogance, pride, judgment, we tend to kind of measure and compare whether we are superior or inferior to others. And this causes significant problems in our life. But this is what the ego is. When I use the word ego, this is what I'm referring to. And you're gonna see here that when we describe the ego, that the word ego didn't actually exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So you won't see the word ego anywhere in the Buddhist teachings whatsoever because The word didn't exist during that time, but the same aspects of the mind that we refer to as the ego did exist. So the Buddha actually refers to what we call the ego as two separate things. And it's actually really, really helpful to understand the ego in these two separate pieces. 
if we just refer to the ego, there's actually different aspects to the ego. And while this definition that I just gave you is kind of a general way to think about the ego, it's really much more deep than this, which is what we're going to explore today in our class. So let's be sure we understand this way that the Buddha actually discussed these two fetters or these taints or pollution of the mind that we now refer to as the ego. Because by understanding these two separate pieces, then you'll more fully be able to actively eradicate them through understanding what they are. In the actual fetters, the Buddha refers to the first fetter as personal existence view. And then he refers to the eighth fetter in the upper fetters or higher fetters as conceit. Both of these together is what makes up the ego. And each one of these break down even further into smaller pieces. So let's first talk about the personal existence view. The personal existence view is made up of the self-image and self-identity. The self-image is how we would like to be perceived, this physical body would like to be perceived in the world. So we do things like spend time on our hair or a certain pair of sunglasses or a certain pair of glasses or certain clothing or jewelry or makeup. It's not that any of these things are necessarily bad or wrong, because remember, when I think about the Buddhist teachings, I don't even think about things in terms of wrong or bad. It's more about how the mind thinks and how it wants to project a certain self-image into the world. So we will tend to spend a certain amount of time trying to look a certain way amongst various people in the world and before we go out. But as we start to eliminate the personal existence view in this one aspect of the personal existence view, which is self-image, we tend to be less interested in putting on jewelry, putting on perfume or colognes. We tend to be less interested in how our hair looks. And as we do, this starts to kind of erode this personal existence view, helping the mind to be less interested in projecting a certain self-image. And likewise, the mind has this self-identity. There's a certain identity that the unenlightened mind will hold on to. And this self-identity is how you want to be identified in the world. It will come down to how you would like to be perceived in terms of qualities of mind. You might be a doctor or an IT professional or a health professional, and you would like to be known as that, and you take on that identity, and that really means a lot to the mind, and the mind has a tendency to hold on to it. Or you might have a certain title or certain role in society, like you might be a wife or a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a parent, a mother or father or something like this. And when you hold on to this as your identity, because those things aren't permanent, when they're gone, it's going to cause the mind discontentedness. Just like with the self-image, if somebody says something positive about your self-image and the way that you look, the way you appear, the mind's going to experience pleasant feelings because there's that self-image that it's projecting into the world. Or if somebody says something disagreeable or negative about the self-image, then you might feel sad or angry or frustrated. So by holding on to this self-image in the mind, this personal existence view, you're leaving yourself open to feeling these discontent, pleasant feelings and these discontent, painful feelings. 
And then sometimes you might just feel like, ah, I don't even know what to do with my hair. I don't know what to do with my makeup. Those neither painful nor pleasant kind of bored or indifferent about how you would like to be perceived in the world. And the same thing goes with the self-identity. If you hold on to certain aspects of that identity as I am a kind person or I am a hard worker or I am a mom, I am a dad, I am a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a boyfriend, I'm a girlfriend. Any of these kind of roles that we have or any kind of qualities that we're trying to project as part of our self-image, when someone says something agreeable based on those things that we find pleasing to the mind, then the mind's going to find pleasure in that and feel excited or happiness or elated or thrilled that somebody is identifying with our self-image that we're trying to project in the world. But if somebody says something disagreeable to us and something that we would prefer not to hear, then that's where the mind can feel sadness or anger or frustration. And sometimes there's the situation where you might be a husband or wife and then you divorce and you feel empty inside because you no longer have that identity or you were a boyfriend or girlfriend at one time. And then when that relationship's over because of impermanence, you no longer have that identity and you feel empty. Or if you really strongly identify with being a mom or a dad and your kids go off to college or your kids tell you like, mom, I don't need you anymore or dad, I don't need you anymore. You can feel very empty inside because you're holding on or the mind is holding on to this self-identity and identifying with certain attributes or certain roles about how the mind would like to be perceived in the world. The teaching that the Buddha shares in order to remedy this is the universal truth of non-self. That's what actually remedies this personal existence view. By understanding this teaching of the universal truth of non-self and then practicing, developing your practice in a certain way to eradicate this self-image and self-identity from the mind, then the mind can rest peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's no longer holding on to this self-image and self-identity. There will still be things that you do in the world. You might still choose to make your hair look a certain way to go outside. But through realizing non-self, if somebody says something pleasing and agreeable, you won't necessarily be like, oh, wow, thank you so much. I really am so pleased you said something about my hair. I took a long time to do that today. Or if someone says something negative, you won't find sadness in that comment. But you still might choose to look presentable when you go outside. That's being in the middle. And likewise, with your identity, you will still know that you're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or you know you're a doctor or a nurse or a IT professional. You will know that you have these certain roles. You might aspire to be kind and friendly and polite, but if somebody tells you like, you're so rude, even though you know you're trying to be polite, you won't take offense to it once you realize non-self. When you let go of holding on to this identity and thinking that this is who you are as a person and this identity is what you identify as being you, when you let that go, then when somebody says something that is opposite of what you feel is the truth, then it won't affect your mind because you know the truth, that you are 
being a polite, kind, friendly, and respectful person. And even though this person can't see that, you won't have a desire or a craving for every single person to know that you're kind, that you're a hard worker, that you're friendly, that you're a mom, that you're a dad. You won't have this desire or this craving to project a certain self-image in the world and looking for pleasant feelings and agreeable comments based on your self-image. Instead, you might just choose to look presentable as you go outside to ensure that you know you just are presentable and respectful and you might see dressing a certain way as being respectful and being polite as going into a certain environment looking nicely so as long as there's this personal existence view in the mind the mind isn't going to be able to move into that first stage of enlightenment and beyond the fourth stage is actual enlightenment this first fetter of personal existence view needs to be eradicated from the mind and in order to do that you need to first deeply understand what it is the problems that it's causing and then later we're going to talk about how to actually dissolve it and eradicate it the teaching of non-self if you remember some of the things that i've said in the past about this what the buddha is basically explaining to help you eliminate this self-image and self-identity from a high level before we go into the exact practices. From a high level, what the Buddha is talking about here when he talks about the universal truth of non-self is he's saying that this physical body, this self-image that the mind wants to project into the world, this physical body isn't you. This isn't who you are. If your body in this particular image if you have on a clean white shirt and you go out into the world you're the same person whereas if you wore a dirty beat up shirt and went into the world you're still the same person you're still the same being nothing about your self-image is a permanent self what you need to do is you need to train the mind to not view the physical appearance or the self-image as being who you are as a person but instead it's just the physical body it's not you it's not me it's not i it's just the physical body and other people are going to perceive this physical body in different ways you can have some people if i were all white and went out in the public and be like oh wow that's so beautiful his clothes are so clean and another person can look at that same appearance and be like, ah, look at him. He's trying to look so holy and so pure by wearing white. He must have a lot of ego to wear that, right? So you can be perceived different ways by different people. But if the mind is craving, desiring, wanting to be perceived a certain way, that's where you open up your mind to experiencing discontentedness because of that craving desire attachment to be perceived in a certain way so the buddha is saying that this physical body isn't you this is not who you are as a person but the problem is is that the mind falsely believes that this physical body is you or it mistakenly thinks that this physical body is you and that's why we tend to, at different times in our life, maybe spend a lot of time doing our hair in a certain way, picking out certain clothes, making sure that the body smells a certain way with perfume, maybe it look a certain way with jewelry. So that's why the mind does that, because it mistakenly or falsely believes 
that this physical body is you and it has this craving desire attachment to be perceived in the world in a certain way. And if you understand the universal truth of non-self, then you realize that this physical body isn't you. It's just a physical body. It's just skin, bones, fluid. There's no you there. You can't point to a you. All you can point to is physical structures like skin, bones, fluid, tissue, things like this. And likewise, there's no you that's in the mind. The thoughts, the feelings, the ideas that you have, this isn't you either. This is just thoughts, feelings, and ideas. They're not you. They're not who you are. Your thoughts, feelings, and ideas don't make up who you are as a person. These are just impermanent, temporary things that come into the mind and out of the mind. The mind itself or the consciousness, it's just a mind or consciousness. It doesn't belong to you. There is no you there. There's no you inside of the mind, just like there's no you inside of the physical body. The way that this self gets accumulated in this existence is that at birth, we're given this name. We're given a label typically at birth, David or Nick or Amina or Holly or Miranda or Elizabeth or Bassam or Manal. We get these different names at birth in order for people to easily identify who we are. So my family wouldn't be able to say like, yeah, this big bag of skin, bones and fluid and tissue just came home from school today. The family has to say, David just came home from school today so that people know who we're talking about, which being we're talking about. But the problem is, is that the mind starts accumulating a certain self image or self identity around this label, around this name that was given to us at birth. And now we start developing a certain amount of arrogance and ego and pride around this name going into what conceit is all about. But we also develop this certain self image or self identity around this name and we start holding on to it all the way to the point where sometimes if there's somebody that has the same name as us in the room, we can be kind of irritable and frustrated just because they have the same name as us. It's like, I'm David. Who, who is this person? claiming to be David, I'm David. Or we might have a certain way that we want our name pronounced and we try to influence people to say our name a certain way because the mind has this craving for permanence and it wants everybody to say our name the same way. And if somebody mispronounces or misspells our name, the person can get irritable or upset or frustrated just because they identify so closely with this name that when they don't get the permanence that their mind desires, that it's craving, then it causes itself to be discontent due to that craving desire attachment. So this universal truth of non-self is teaching you that you shouldn't hold on to this physical body or this mind expecting that this is who you are and craving permanence. In fact, the way that we use language is very difficult for us because we use these pronouns like David or whatever name you have. We use pronouns like I, me, mine, or you. We use these different names, but our language is really unfitting and ill-equipped to actually explain what's truly going on here. 
So part of the problem that we have is that our language and the way that we have to refer to the different beings kind of reinforces our misperceptions and our misunderstanding, our confusion, our delusion, our ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that there is no self. That's the true wisdom that you can see more and more clearly as you practice the Buddhist teachings more and more, that there is no self. But because of the way our language is constructed, there's no way to refer to this big bag of skin with bones, fluid, and tissue. We need to give these names like David or use the word I or me or my or you. So our language is very unfitting in order to explain what's truly happening. What we're truly experiencing in this existence is this physical body and this mind that has come together. And with this physical body and mind coming together, essentially the mind or the consciousness is using the physical body to execute certain things in the world through our speech and through our actions. And it's this mind that uses this physical body and this connection between the two and this lack of our ability of our language to really explain what's going on here that our mind gets deluded and it gets confused and it doesn't understand the universal truth of non-self. And when you understand that there is no self here and you implement the practices that I'm going to share later in today's class, then you can eradicate this personal existence view. You can eradicate this permanent self that the mind thinks that is there. And you can instead realize non-self or you can discover that there is no self. And when the mind gradually erodes, holding on to this permanent existence view, or when the mind gradually lets go of this self-image and self-identity and realizes that it's not the self, then you'll see that the mind becomes more content and more peaceful no matter what's happening. If you hear something agreeable about your physical appearance or your self-identity, that's fine. doesn't affect you. You might be appreciative, you might be grateful, but you don't take extreme happiness in the fact that somebody's complimenting positively or agreeable to you about your self-image or your self-identity. And when you realize non-self or eradicating the permanent self and realizing that there is no self there, if somebody comments positively about, oh, you're so kind or you're so wise or you're so thoughtful or you're such a good mom or you're such a good dad, you won't find pleasure in that. You'll just acknowledge their politeness and that they're being polite. And then if somebody speaks negatively about you, that you're a bad mom or a bad dad, or, or if you lose your husband or wife for any reason, or your boyfriend or girlfriend, or your children leave, you will not identify with these things as being who you are as a person, and you can stay whole. You won't feel empty when these things are gone because you're not holding on to them. You realize the impermanent nature of being a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad. This is all impermanent and you just fulfill the various roles that you have, but you don't identify with it as being who you are as a person. So this is the first part of what we refer to as the ego that the Buddha described as personal existence view. I would like to pause here and see what questions you guys have before we talk about conceit 
to make sure you guys understand very clearly each of these individually so that we can put them together and understand what the ego is. So if you have questions, put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Hi, David. We have a question from Bitblock. I have confidence in Gautama Buddha. I feel content when I see others are not yet following this path. In daily life, I feel stress-free and content. Is it my ego? I don't hear any ego in there. If you are just seeing other people and they're not practicing the path and you're completely fine with that, that's not the ego. That's just not having craving and desire and just acknowledging that not everyone's going to be on this path. And David, can you speak anything about the roots of the ego? Is it simply the conditioning that we experience? It's the conditioning that we experience in this life, but also from other lives as well. When we talk about conceit, you'll understand more about how this actually connects back to our animal existences. And we can even talk about it in relationship to personal existence view. As an animal, and we've all been countless animals in the past, you can't eliminate personal existence view in terms of you need to hold on to a permanent self. That's the only thing that keeps a deer alive in the forest when there's predators around. Because one of the things that happens when you let go of the personal existence view is you'll notice that a lot of your fears will be eliminated from the mind. But for a deer or some prey animal, if they let go of that, they wouldn't be able to sustain their life. So they need to have this personal existence view. Like a lion or a tiger, they kind of mark out their territory. You know, this is my territory. And if somebody steps into their territory and offends them or disrespects them, then the lion's got to fight for its survival because it's got these other prey animals that it's preying on. And that's how it survives is eating other animals. And also it has sex with other animals. So if another animal came into its territory and disrespected it, and it just allowed that to happen, then the animal wouldn't survive very long. So whether it's personal existence view or conceit, we've held on to this for a really long time in our countless animal existences. But now that we're in the human realm, our mind is still conditioned in that way from our previous existences. And it takes on more conditioning because of this name that we get and other things in society you know, society kind of influencing us to always be successful. You're going to make your mark on this world. You know, you need to leave your mark on the world and you need to be somebody and you got to do something to change the world. And because of this conditioning that we receive, the mind holds on to this. And that's where the ego gets accumulated, where in reality, somebody who's working to dissolve the ego you would still maintain your confidence or your independent confidence, but you would just not try to be anyone special. Trying to be special or trying to be something, trying to be something to everybody, that's part of the problem of this personal existence view and conceit is that we have these expectations of ourselves and others have expectations of us. And that forms craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And we go around trying to prove ourselves to everybody. And then as soon as we meet with some amount of success that we may have even met the goals that we set out for originally, because of craving, desire, attachment, the bar moves 
and now we want more and we want more and we want more so this constant craving desire attachment having certain expectations of ourselves or inheriting the expectations others have for us the ego keeps thriving and it has this unquenchable thirst to just prove to everybody who you are in the world rather than just resting and being peaceful calm serene and content with joy going around constantly trying to prove yourself to everybody is quite exhausting and this is why someone who has ego they'll never attain enlightenment as long as they have ego because you're constantly going to be craving for everyone to know who you are your self-image your self-identity there's going to be this conceit or arrogance and other qualities of conceit that's going to be there and the mind can't ever just rest and be at rest thank you david ashish has a question now so let's go to him sure uh hi teacher david i had a two-part question um so on one hand you know you have this concept of uh the universal truth of non-self where we are encouraged to um shed our identity arise beyond identity whether you're you know it professional or a man or a woman or whatever beyond the physical body but then uh, so first part of the question is yesterday there was a chapter 96 from i don't know what book it was but it talked about you know how a woman could not be brahma woman could not be uh, enlightened it's impossible and so there were like six or seven they would talk about a woman so i'm i'm part one of the question is how do we reconcile that contradiction where on one hand there is this universal truth of non self but then there is this passage reinforcing an identity of a woman right that is my first question and second question is and this is kind of i wanted to ask this yesterday but didn't get a chance is i wasn't really sure the about it seemed almost very uh, i don't want to use discriminatory but like like shouldn't all beings have an equal opportunity to be enlightened and so i wasn't sure about that part about why women couldn't achieve whatever was stated in the So this is a kind of two-part question, if it makes sense. Sure. So let's handle that second part first. Is the teaching that I shared in yesterday's class that was just part of the book that we were studying and part of the Buddhist teachings, is the Buddha was sharing certain types of beings that those beings aren't a woman, right? So he was saying a Buddha, in order to be a Buddha, a Buddha would be a male. And he went through other classifications of beings, including... this being of mara which is a very devilish kind of evil influential being so it's not that beings that are female can't attain enlightenment because all beings no matter what gender they are they can attain enlightenment but the buddha was going through five or six different types of beings that he was saying in order to be these types of beings that these beings are male essentially is what he's saying So a Buddha is always going to be a male. He talked about the highest being in the heavenly realm is going to be a male. He talked about uh, Mara is going to be a male. He talked about a wheel-turning monarch is going to be a male. He talked about Brahma or a god is going to be a male. So this is what he teaches that those particular types of beings are going to be male. But all beings can attain enlightenment in terms of human beings whether they're male or female or even transgender or don't identify with any gender whatsoever 
the gender that one is isn't dependent upon whether you attain enlightenment or not. But what the Buddha was sharing in that particular teaching that was in yesterday's class is that for those particular types of beings, they're all going to be male. Thank you, David. Let's get a Basman now for our Zoom questions. Well, thanks, James. We have a question from Amina. She says, hi, everyone. A question about the ego. Yesterday, someone assumed that I didn't possess the ability to speak their language and the mind felt an offense. Then realized this was the ego wishing to project a certain perception to others. After that, I simply smiled and said I would be happy to speak to them. This was the ego raising its head, correct? Yes, that's that self-identity that the mind wants to be perceived that I can speak your language. And when someone assumed that you couldn't speak the language, you felt like a little bit lesser of a person. And what will tend to happen at that point is that's where the arrogance and pride will come out and rear its head. And now we become unskillful with our intentions, our speech and our actions. But a Buddhist practitioner who understands this, as it seems like you did, Amina, that when you start seeing that little bit of arrogance and pride, that self-identity start to rear up, you cut it off and let it go. And then that allows the mind to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Eventually, the more you do that, it won't arise at all. You'll hear somebody that will assume that you don't speak Italian, probably, and you'll just be fine with that. It won't affect you. But right now, you felt that little bit of arising, and once you became aware of it, boom, you cut it off. And that's part of the remedy to all of this. Once you understand what these defilements are, what these taints are, what this pollution of mind is, and you understand how it's affecting our life, then when you see it arise, then you can cut it off and let it go. But the only way you will be able to do that is if you've got this breathing mindfulness meditation practice that you're consistently doing each day, two or three times a day, and you're practicing generosity as a way to kind of prepare the mind and soften the mind so that when you're in the moment and that kind of thing happens, you can catch it and cut it off and let it go and just go on with your day. But if you're not aware of these things and you're not practicing these things as part of a life practice, that's where people can become very unraveled and do all kinds of unskillful things. Well, uh, thanks, teacher. Uh, I think uh, the first part of uh, Mr. Ashish's uh, question, you didn't answer it. I put it into the overall is, you know, I think his question was, you know, how to reconcile these teachings. And, you know, what I was sharing there is that the Buddha is just saying these beings of a Buddha, a wheel turning monarch, the ruler of the heavenly realm, Mara, the evil one who influences negative behaviors, and also Brahma, or what we would refer to as God, the Buddha is saying all of these are male genders, right? So they're gendered as male. So think of it that way, rather than a woman can't be a Buddha, because that, I think, kind of cast it in a negative view, rather than just think of it as, okay, these beings, what the Buddha is sharing, are going to be male. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks, teacher. Uh, no more questions for now. Yeah, and one of the things that I'd like to share on that topic is if you notice that in those different beings, it's not just 
beings that are considered to be good and wholesome. There's also Mara in there who's like the influencer of unwholesome, unskillful activity. And the Buddha is saying that's going to be a male too. So it's not like the Buddha is preserving all of these really important roles and saying that these are all only going to be males, but it's even this very evil one too. He's saying that's going to be a male as well. So it's important to keep that in mind. So moving on to the second part of what we call the ego. Now that you understand this personal existence view, this self-image, self-identity, this mind that's falsely, mistakenly thinking that this physical body or mind is you and our language isn't capable of really explaining it, which we'll get to a little bit later, the remedy for this is to realize non-self, is to understand non-self and practice in a way that erodes and gradually dissolves the personal existence view. Or another way to say that is erodes this misperception or this false belief or this misunderstanding, this confusion, this delusion, this ignorance. We need to erode or slowly dissolve that through practicing non-self. And through doing that, then you eliminate the personal existence view and the mind will reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy more and more as you eradicate all of these fetters. This eighth fetter that is part of what we call the ego is referred to as conceit. The way to think about conceit is as arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing as being superior or inferior to others. This is what we call conceit. And this one is usually pretty straightforward for people to understand because you're a bit more familiar with it. The personal existence view is oftentimes very challenging for people because there's so much delusion there. There's so much confusion that you maybe have never heard of the universal truth of non-self or had it explained to you before. So it usually takes many conversations and many classes to understand personal existence view where conceit you've experienced this, you having conceit and also other people having conceit with you where there's arrogance or pride or judging even yourself or judging others or this measuring and comparing as superior or inferior. And once again, this also comes from our animal existences because when we were a pack of wolves or we were a pack of elephants or a herd of elephants or any other animal in the animal kingdom, there's always this pecking order that animals look for. And it's actually part of survival, that there is an alpha female or there's an alpha male in certain packs of animals or certain herds of animals. And that keeps the survival of the fittest. It keeps the pack continuing to evolve and becoming stronger and stronger. And in order to survive in that kind of environment, everybody needs to kind of know who's above me and who's below me. And this kind of helps to ease the community and everybody feels more peaceful in the animal world that way. But here in the human world, we actually don't need this. It actually hinders us. It actually causes problems. It produces unskillful behavior. When we're going around trying to measure if we're above people or we're below people, this puts a lot of burden on the mind. And now 
if we feel that we're above people and we look down on people with arrogance and we're judging them, this is going to come across in our intentions, our speech and our actions. And when people sense that, they're going to reject you as part of them not being interested in being around you because you're having this arrogance or this judging or this measuring yourself as being above and superior to everybody. And the same thing is if you consider yourself inferior. This is just as dangerous as being superior. If you consider yourself below people, then you're going to lack confidence. You're going to lack certain ability to perform in certain roles. You're going to look at yourself as being below others and your mind's going to be uncalm and shaken up and unstable when you're around people that you feel are so far above you. And now you're not going to be able to talk. You're not going to be able to communicate. You're not going to be able to accomplish any certain goals or tasks. And people will look at you as you're lacking confidence in certain projects or certain opportunities that could potentially come your way to improve your life. You'll find that you're not going to be able to participate in those opportunities because you're lacking the confidence and you kind of feel that you're inferior. So if you go around thinking you're superior in certain situations, then that's going to cause problems and difficulties for you. And then because of that, you're also going to consider yourself inferior in certain situations. And the mind isn't going to be comfortable in those situations where you're feeling inferior, right? This is where you might have sweaty palms. You might have butterflies in your stomach. You might feel unwell when you're in those situations. But this is all imposed by the mind. This is the mind doing this to itself, where it can be trained to reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter who you're around. If you're around somebody that is considered so far, you know, kind of a lower part of society, which I don't really agree with, but some people perceive it that way. If you're around that person or you're around somebody who's considered to be an upper, higher part of society, if your mind has eliminated this arrogance, this pride, this judging, this measuring and comparing, then no matter who you're around, you can actually function the same way. You can still function through the Eightfold Path. You can still have right view, right intention, right speech with those five factors of well-spoken speech. You can do all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path and you can function just normally, whether somebody is in a very high position in society or if somebody's kind of in a lower position of society or what is perceived as a lower position or what is perceived as being a higher position. Instead, the mind has to get to a point where you're practicing in such a way that all beings are equal, that you see everyone as being equal, that there is no difference and you're not trying to figure out who's above and who's below, but instead your practice in terms of your intentions, your speech and your actions is just always the same. You speak to everybody the same way in terms of using the five factors of well-spoken speech, that you're always speaking at the right time, what you say is true, what you speak is gentle, you speak beneficially with a mind of loving kindness and without blame. And when you develop your practice to that point where you're in the middle, this is where the mind can be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you don't have to figure out who you're talking to. Is it a boss 
Or is it a coworker who just started last week and they're below me? No, you talk to all those people the same. Is it the president of the country or is it somebody who is homeless? You know, I can speak to both of these people the same way. When you eliminate this conceit, you can speak to people in the same way using the eightfold path. You can continue to maintain your practice and this releases the burden from your mind to try to figure out the pecking order amongst human beings because we don't need that. We don't need a pecking order. All we need is to train the mind to practice these good, wholesome teachings. And if you do, and you practice something like right speech with the five factors of well-spoken speech with the president of a country or a homeless person, it's not causing harm to either person and your speech is appropriate. Or if you're speaking to your boss or you're speaking to an employee who just started the other day, your speech is exactly the same. You don't have to switch and flip switches to figure out who you're talking to and then you kind of fumble on your words or you misspeak and you say things to your boss that you feel like you shouldn't have said and that were maybe disrespectful or you said things to a new employee that was maybe arrogant or egotistical. Instead, if you eradicate all of this stuff from the mind, all these pollution, all this 10 fetters, and you're practicing the Eightfold Path the way the Buddha teaches, then you can just be the same all the time to everybody. You don't have to burden the mind with constantly trying to figure out who you're speaking to on any given occasion. Any questions on conceit? I noticed that conceit seems to be almost directly inverse to the four Brahma Viharas. And I was wondering what relationship there is between those two things. Yeah, if you think about the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, you know, with loving kindness, it's a genuine interest for all beings to be well and be peaceful. Well, if you have arrogance and pride and you're judging people, you can't do that, right? And, and also part of loving kindness is, you know, without judgment, that you're having a genuine interest for all beings to be well and be peaceful without judging beings. But it's just all beings. You have that genuine interest to see. Compassion, concern for the misfortune of others. Well, rather than being arrogant or prideful, you can use compassion or concern for the misfortune of others to help eradicate some of that arrogance or pride that might be in there. Sympathetic joy. This one has a lot to do with conceit because sympathetic joy is eradicating jealousy. Sympathetic joy is having joy for other success, whether you contributed to it or not. And what it's doing is it's any kind of envy or jealousy is antidoting or remedying that. Well, if there's arrogance or pride or judging or measuring or comparing as inferior or superior, this conceit, that is going to produce jealousy in the mind and sympathetic joy can help to remedy that. And then the same thing with equanimity. Equanimity is all about, you know, that first part of it is keeping the mind calm and composed, evenness of temper, even in difficult situations or especially in difficult situations. But then there's that second component of looking at everyone as equal and having that fairness as the way that you treat all beings in an equal and fair way. This is going to help to eradicate conceit too. So that's why, you know, this book is kind of laid out the way that it is because one chapter leads into the next. And through practicing those four healthy mental states, 
you'll be able to then further eliminate these here. And then remember in that chapter as well, I talk about generosity in addition to the four Brahma Viharas, which you'll see is part of what's going to help to remedy these as well and eliminate these. We have a follow-up from Ashish, so let's go to him next. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, Teacher David. Uh, thanks for answering my question. And I realized maybe I didn't phrase it uh, probably uh, in the best way I could. Uh, so the part that I still don't follow is, you know, we, we have this uh, concept of non-self, which you know, is encouraging us to go beyond identities. But then the chapter 96 is actually reinforcing identity, whether it is woman or man, whatever it is. It is, you know, saying, okay, only men can be this and women can. So I'm trying to reconcile, like, on one hand, we have this notion of non-self, uh, being completely free of the physical uh, self or identity. But then there is this passage, you know, reinforcing some aspects of identity. So how do you reconcile both these? I don't see it as the Buddha is reinforcing an identity. I see it as him just stating the truth of what is, that these are just roles that are fulfilled by male beings. I don't see it as what you're saying. If we have no more follow-ups, then that's all the questions that we have for now. Okay. And Ashish, if I'm missing something, feel free to, to, you know, to ask him more here. We can discuss this some more, but I'm not seeing the same thing that you're seeing. I see it as the Buddha just saying, okay, all of these beings, I think there were five or six, he's saying these are going to be males, right? That's what he's saying. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, uh, but it just still seems that there is kind of some acknowledgement, the recognition of roles and being tied to identity, um, So, which is what I'm, I'm thrown off by a bit, you know, where like the, it seems it's uh, not maybe reinforcing is not the right word, but it's pointing towards identities and certain roles being fulfilled by those identities versus, you know, being a little more universal, um, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to sit with that question. I, I understand that, you know, the answer may not be very clear to me, but, um, but yeah, I'll uh, reflect on it more. I think where this comes from for some folks who are maybe having the same thoughts as you too, Ashish, is we're so used to being told that, you know, women can't do this or men can't do that, right? That's kind of like the way a lot of us were brought up and what we've been exposed to in terms of certain roles in society. And this conditioning of men and women performing certain roles in society is being held in the mind. And this can taint our view of looking at something like the Buddhist teachings where he's just saying, okay, these types of beings, they are going to be male. Kind of like, let's just say there was some species of animal, like monkeys. Let's just say all monkeys were males, right? All monkeys are males. And let's just say all gorillas are females. I don't know. So he's just saying that all these types of beings are going to be male genders, right? It's not to say like what we're often told in society is that, you know, in the old, old days, it was men are doctors, women are nurses, so to speak, or, you know, men are police officers. And we have certain things like that, that a lot of part of society has overcome. And now the doors are wide open for all genders to do all things. 
and this is the way that we feel most comfortable in the world and the way that the world is evolving to. But still, what the Buddha is sharing in terms of the truth of the teachings is that those five or six beings that he mentioned, he's saying they're all going to be male, just like saying all monkeys are male or all gorillas are female. Gotcha, gotcha. So one final follow-up question, Teacher David. So just like the, the passage 96, is there a similar passage that talks about beings that cannot be men? The flip side of that passage. Uh, I haven't seen anything like that yet. So here's some distinction for you to think about too, Ashish. It's not that he's saying that a woman can't become one of these things, right? Because that's what we're used to in our society in the past, that like a woman could not become a police officer or a man could not become a nurse, right? And there were kind of these limitations where people could not become something. The difference here with the Buddha is what he's saying is these beings are male, right? It's not that a being is becoming something. It, he's just stating that these beings are of a male gender. Right, right, right. It is uh, just stating the, the truth of the facts and not the inhibition uh, from someone to become something. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And I'm wondering, like, why it would focus, it, wouldn't it have a balanced view? Like, oh, these are the beings that can be men and these are the beings that can be women, right? And that, to me, would seem a very universal kind of truth. Um, and I'm happy to take this offline. I don't want to kind of digress from your today's topic, but it's just one of those things that kind of stuck to me from yesterday. Sure. So the one thing that I would share there is it's not that a woman can't be this or a man can be this or can't be that. It's just that he's saying, these beings are going to be male. And that's the best way to talk about it. And I agree that we can take this offline to discuss it further and as you process it. Thank you so much, yeah. Okay, so let's move on to this next part that I was going to share with you guys just to kind of further identify and describe what I'm talking about here in terms of the ego. Now that you guys understand the two pieces of the ego, we can now talk about it as the ego, okay? So the ego will oftentimes project unwholesome qualities onto others and read that reflection as if it's coming from the other person when it's actually coming from your own mind. So for example, if you're in a meeting and somebody walked in and he or she uh, looked very handsome or looked very beautiful, and you've never met this person in your life ever before, and they just walked into the meeting, and your mind thought, oh, look at them trying to look so handsome, or look at them trying to look so beautiful. Don't they think they're special? Well, in reality, that's actually your own mind. You're actually viewing them through the pollution of your own mind. And oftentimes what the ego does is it casts these certain unwholesome qualities onto another person, and it reads that reflection as if it's that person, but in fact, it's your own mind. Or another way to describe this is rather than casting a certain unwholesome quality on somebody and reading the reflection is coming from them when in fact, it's actually your mind. Another way to say that is you're looking through your own unwholesome qualities. Because of that, it's tainting your view. It's making it difficult for you to see true reality. That truly what this is, is just a person has walked into the room. 
a person just walked into the room, a human being just walked into the room. Any kind of qualities that you assign to this person is your own perceptions. And your own perceptions in the unenlightened state are going to be tainted. They're going to be polluted. They're going to be defiled by your own pollution of mind, these 10 fetters. So it's important that you keep this in mind as you roam about the world and you interact in various conversations and various relationships that your mind may have a tendency to view others in a negative light or as unwholesome. And because of that, it's inhibiting you from coming close to them and having an open, healthy relationship because you've got this ego in the way that's keeping you away from just seeing true reality and seeing this person for who they are, which is just a human being. What's going on here is the mind is judging the other person. The mind is attempting to determine, you know, what is right or wrong for this other person. There's a certain amount of arrogance or pride. It's based in conceit where the mind is looking at other people through this pollution of your own mind. And it's trying to deem them as being wholesome or unwholesome. And in reality, if you just get rid of that judgment and stop looking at people through that pollution or reading your own reflection and just see true reality that someone just walked into the room and just see it as that and only that and clear out any kind of other pollution that might be invading the mind, then you can have a healthy relationship with this person. When this person speaks up in a meeting and they have a certain idea, you will consider it. But if you have these unwholesome qualities that you're projecting onto this person and now they speak up in a meeting, you might discount or disparage their idea just because of your own pollution of mind, attributing those unwholesome qualities to this person when in reality you've never met them before and they just walked in and they're sharing some ideas. So stay open to their ideas because if you cast these unwholesome qualities onto this person and now your intention, speech, and actions become unskillful, it's not just with that person. Other people around you see that and now you're going to inhibit your ability to have a productive conversation, productive relationships, where you now have opportunities to have beneficial results in various objectives that you might embark on with the different people that are involved in your various relationships. When you start being unskillful with one particular individual because of your own pollution of mind and judging others, it's going to impact your ability to have wholesome relationship with other people around you. So by you clearing out the conceit and you eliminating your judgment of other people, then you will find that you'll be able to relate to all people and have healthy relationships with all people. What we're talking about here is we're talking about perceptions. We're talking about how the mind perceives things in a certain way. What a perception is, is it's a certain belief or opinion based on how things seem to you. Based on your own conditioning, based on your own pollution of mind, somebody walks in in a nice expensive suit or somebody walks in with some nice makeup, some nice jewelry. The mind has a certain belief or a certain opinion and you might think very positively of this person and now you relate to them in a certain way. And then when somebody comes in the opposite of that, you might relate to them in a negative way. 
Or you might perceive somebody who walks in in a very expensive suit with lots of makeup and nice jewelry, you might perceive them in a negative light. And now because of your belief, because of your opinions, based on this conditioning of the mind, based on your own ego, there are certain situations with people that become difficult for you and it's a real struggle for you and you don't get to experience just existing peacefully and at ease just being at ease with people and being able to just have open conversations whether you agree or you disagree with them on any particular topic and the mind will struggle through this ego through this judgment through its own perceptions through this arrogance and pride through this measuring and comparing, through this self-image, this self-identity, and it will struggle through relationships, always being uneasy and almost fearful in relationships. And when you let go of all of this stuff, then the mind can be at ease, right? Another thing that the ego will oftentimes do is not only project unwholesome qualities on others, but it will project wholesome qualities on others, expecting or wanting or craving for other people to be the same as you. If you're on this path and you've learned to be loving and kind and compassionate and generous, and you see other people that aren't practicing that, if your mind has this ego and you're projecting these wholesome qualities onto others and you have this craving for other people to be the same way as you or you're expecting them to be the same way as you, you're going to cause yourself discontentedness. And the mind's going to oftentimes attempt to control other people and try to control them to do things in a certain way rather than just be at ease and just be comfortable with everybody making their own decisions and realizing that not everybody's going to be practicing these good, wholesome qualities of mind. So if your mind is craving permanence for everyone to be wholesome, or expecting everyone to be at a certain place as you in your growth in this life practice, then you're going to find it difficult and you're going to find struggles in your relationship. So a common one is if you've chosen to become vegetarian or vegan, and then because you've made those choices for certain reasons, and you go out into the world and you see people who are eating meat still, you might look down on them with arrogance Or you might be prideful that you've become vegan or vegetarian. And now because of that, it produces unskillful intention, speech and actions, which puts strain and harshness and difficulties into your relationships. And you're going to find that it's a real struggle. So with everything that I've said so far, what you should hopefully be starting to see is the ego serves no purpose whatsoever. It's like that bad tenant that's living in your house that never pays any rent, never gives you any benefit, and it doesn't want to leave. The ego just wants to hold on and hold on and hold on. And as soon as you start convincing this bad tenant to leave, it figures out a way to hold on a little bit longer, right? So the ego is essentially like a bad tenant that you need to evict, but you just somehow keep being convinced to hold on to it a little bit longer. The ego serves no purpose. We need to evict this girl, this guy, this whoever we wanna call it. We need to evict this, we need to eliminate it, we need to dissolve it, we need to eradicate it from the mind. 
In the rest of our class, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about how to eliminate this personal existence view and conceit from the mind. So let's do that. This first part is how to dissolve the personal existence view, how to eliminate it from the mind. There's multiple things that I put into chapter 16 along these lines, and I'm going to cover them all today and give you guys a chance to ask questions about them so that now with this understanding of what the ego is and the difficulties that it's causing in your life, you can actually start working on eradicating it. The first thing is you'll need to receive guidance on how to use the meditation to realize non-self. If you remember back to chapter 11, there's a meditation there to realize non-self. When it's the appropriate time, you're going to need to get some guidance on that. And the appropriate time for that is typically when somebody's already put together the core teachings of the Buddha, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. They're understanding the three poisons. They're understanding the natural law of gamma. They got a really good, solid breathing mindfulness meditation practice and loving kindness meditation practice that's been going on for a good six months to a year. They're seeing a lot of benefit. They're noticing their minds becoming more peaceful. Certain situations in the past that once bothered the mind, you now very rarely even feel a little bit of annoyance in those same situations. The discontentedness has significantly decreased. The mind starting to kind of peer into the jhanas. This is the time to start looking at adding this meditation practice into what you're already doing. But you've got to kind of build up that foundation and that baseline practice before you can do this. Because if you just sat down and tried to do this, if the mind isn't prepared with all those other core teachings, it's not going to work. So you're going to need to get some guidance on this meditation, which oftentimes you will need to read that part of the chapter in chapter 11 and probably get some personal guidance through scheduling a personal session with me to talk about how to integrate this into your practice, but also at the same time, being sure that you fully understand what the personal existence view is, deeply understand the self-image and self-identity, and deeply understand the universal truth of non-self. And once we've had a couple of personal discussions about that, and there's the intellectual understanding, now you can move into practicing the meditation to eradicate the self or realize non-self. But without all that preliminary work, you wouldn't really get the benefit of this meditation. So this meditation is part of what can help you to realize non-self. The next thing is, Look at changing your language in the way that you use language because the language that you use is going to be part of how the mind thinks. So if you th currently think about this as being my husband or my wife or my children or my car or my house or my job, this is the mind taking ownership and trying to hold on to this self-identity, this self-image mine, 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 mine. And oftentimes the mind becomes very selfish or very stingy because of it. So changing your language here not only helps you with eradicating the self and personal existence view, but it also helps you to eliminate stinginess or selfishness and become more generous. Instead of thinking of this as mine, you know, my job or my car, think about it as 
the car or the transportation that I use, right? And if you start referring to things that way and thinking that way in your mind over the period of six months or a year, the mind will slowly start to dissolve thinking that everything's mine, 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 and trying to hold on to things. So instead of my clothes, it's just the clothes. Or instead of my cell phone or my mobile phone, it's the phone. So when you say to somebody, can you hand me my phone? Instead, can you hand me the phone? Or instead of, I've got to get my clothes washed and laundered, or I want to put on my clothes, you just say, I need to put on the clothes, right? Or instead of thinking that I am hungry, think about it as the body is hungry. Or instead of I have a headache, think about it as the head hurts. This slowly starts to change the way that the mind thinks when you change the way that you look at things in the world. So that's a really important one. What you're doing is you're disassociating with all of these objects, all of these relationships, all of these life situations that you find yourself in. You're starting to separate the mind and see that there's a difference here, that you aren't a wife, you aren't a mom, you aren't a husband, you aren't a doctor. If you hold on to these things really tightly, then when those things are gone because of impermanence, your mind's going to be very discontent. So what you do is you start to separate the mind from those things now. You start to disassociate with these things. Still fulfill the role. You need to fulfill the role of a wife or a husband or mom or dad or doctor or whatever profession you have. You need to apply diligence and determination and dedication to performing your roles that you perform and take care of your responsibilities but don't associate with it as being mine, 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 mine. And when you start separating the mind from it, then the mind can be more peaceful, more content, because you're not identifying with these things. So if your mind is so caught up in a certain profession and you really want to perform in this profession so badly, when you miss a deadline, you're going to be beat up inside about it. You're going to feel very irritated or annoyed or frustrated or angry about it. Or if you get demoted or if you get laid off or something like this, the mind's going to be highly discontent because of it. But if you can disassociate with these things and just realize this is the job that you do in order to sustain your life and you enjoy the job and it's something that you aspire to perform well at, but you don't identify with it being mine, 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 mine. So by disassociating with it through your language, you train the mind to let go. And then because all of these things are impermanent, when they're gone, you won't experience discontentedness because of it. You need to develop the perception of impermanence by deeply observing in the world impermanence. Because if your mind thinks that this body is you, and this mind is you, you have this personal existence view that this body is you, well, then you can reflect. If there's a permanent self here, then why has your image of who you are constantly changed? When you were a child at the age of 10 or 12, you had a certain self-image or certain self-identity. 
And that it changed when you became an early adult. And as you aged, your image and your identity has constantly been changing of who you think you are. That's why you know that there is no self. There is no permanent, never changing self. Because when you look at how you viewed yourself in the past, that's been constantly changing over the whole course of your life. Another way that you can deeply understand impermanence related to personal existence view is that if this body is the permanent self, is this body permanent? The answer is no. Is this mind permanent? The answer is no. So where is this permanent self that the mind wants to hold on to? And the answer is that it doesn't exist. This is why sometimes people go out in the world and say, I need to find myself or I need to find my true self, or I don't even know who I am anymore, right? That's because there is no self. It keeps changing and people are trying to hold on to a self and they get into that conflict in the mind, that inner conflict where they don't even know who they are anymore, right? Or you might even say that to your partner. I don't even know who you are anymore. Well, that's because all of this stuff is constantly changing. But if the mind is holding on, thinking that there's permanence in the world and it hasn't developed this perception of impermanence, then it's going to cause itself discontentedness. In terms of the physical appearance and the image or the self-image, you can do things like wear simple clothing or make your appearance look very simple, very basic, simple clothing, or whatever clothing that you have don't spend time rooting through your clothing and figuring out exactly what to wear today. One of the things that you can do is just stack up all your shirts, stack up all your pants, and just pick whatever is on top and just wear that. And if the mind is like, no, 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 I don't want to wear this, because that's the mind wanting to be perceived in the world in a certain way. So your clothing makes up a certain part of your self-image. This is why the Buddha wore rags and robes. This is why Buddhist practitioners wear just simple clothing, like I'm wearing all white, because we just don't care about the clothing and how we are perceived in the world. We're training the mind to just let go of being perceived as any particular way in the world. So if you're not interested in going out and buying a whole bunch of simple clothes, whatever clothes you currently have, just stack them on top of each other and just grab whatever is on top. Don't even let the mind choose right? Because it's the mind wanting to choose what to wear to project that self-image in certain situations. But if you just stack up your clothes and pull off of what's on top, the mind never gets a chance to choose. And you might be in situations where you wouldn't normally have worn those clothes, but you've got to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in that situation. Don't perceive yourself or self-image through the clothing that you're wearing. So just grab any old clothing that's on top and just wear that. Same thing with jewelry, makeup, scents, or facial hair or head hair. What you oftentimes do when you're working on eradicating the self to realize non-self and eliminate this personal existence view is people will oftentimes eliminate their jewelry, makeup, scents, and head hair and facial hair. You don't have to do that all at one time. You don't even have to give it away if you don't necessarily are interested in doing that, but just kind of decreasing what you're doing, slowly getting the mind comfortable with not wearing jewelry in the world, 
For example, if a woman has very long, elaborate earrings, maybe you go to studs for a while and kind of gradually let the mind get comfortable with that. And then eventually wear no earrings at all. And then same thing with makeup. Maybe you slowly decrease that to the point where you're eventually comfortable going outside without makeup. And maybe you go out just five minutes to a convenience store, get something simple when you come home, and that's all you can do for a couple of times until you kind of build up letting go of more and more of the self where you don't need to have makeup or cologne or perfume or for men, you know, facial hair or certain type of head hair. You kind of slowly eradicate the mind choosing to project this certain self-image in the world. And if you can do that abruptly, that's fine. But oftentimes it's more comfortable to do it slowly. And you'll find that that will be more comfortable for the mind. Now, once you go a year, two years, three years, and you're practicing in this way, if you decide to wear jewelry every once in a while, or you decide to wear makeup or scents or something, that's fine. Remember, the Buddhist teachings aren't a bunch of rules to follow about what is right and what is wrong. It's more about training guidance and training the mind through this guidance. So if you slowly strip down your life practice, to where you've gone a year or two or three without having an interest to wear jewelry or makeup or have certain scents or facial hair or head hair or have certain elaborate clothing. Well, then after you've observed that for a year, two or three, the mind's been completely peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy in this simplicity that you've built into your life practice, well, if you choose to wear makeup every once in a while or you choose to wear jewelry every once in a while, that's okay, because once you fully eradicate the personal existence view, once the mind fully realizes non-self, and it's been a year, two, or three, it's not going to come back. Once you eradicate this stuff from the mind, this pollution is completely gone from the mind, it's not going to come back just because you wore jewelry a few times or you wore makeup a few times. But you've got to make sure that it's fully eradicated out of the mind before you can start maybe introducing some of these things. So just keep that in mind that the Buddhist teachings aren't rules to follow. It's not about what's right or wrong. It's about training guidance to train the mind in the direction of enlightenment. And once you've accomplished the goal and you see some longevity that the mind has accomplished that goal for a certain period of time, then bringing back some of these things can be just fine. But you need to make sure you've fully eradicated the pollution from the mind before you even think about bringing any of this stuff back into your life. Whenever you notice that the mind is interested in projecting the self-image or you feel any hurt or any painful feelings or pleasant feelings related to the personal image, that self-image or the self-identity, you've got to cut it off and let it go, like what Amina was talking about earlier. When you notice that you're getting ready to go into the closet and you're grabbing a pair of clothes and you're like, no, I don't want to wear that today. That's not going to look good. I, I need to look good for my friends that I'm going to have coffee with. Right there, you got to cut that off. You got to identify that as the self-image, self-identity is starting to arise cut it off and let it go and go completely the opposite direction of what the mind wants. Or if you notice that having these pleasant feelings, if you notice the mind's having these pleasant feelings, when somebody says, you're such a great mom, or you're such a great 
boyfriend or you're such a wonderful brother or sister and you notice that the pride or the arrogance is coming into the mind, you got to cut that off right there, right? Don't allow the mind to dwell in those pleasant feelings. Don't allow the mind to welcome or invite in those pleasant feelings because if you do, when you're not getting those, then you're going to experience the painful feelings. So whenever you experience painful feelings around the self-image or self-identity, cut them off and let it go. And as I mentioned, if you've got this breathing mindfulness meditation practice and a practice of generosity underway, then it will make that a lot easier for you. And be sure to seek guidance with a teacher over multiple sessions because it's going to take some interaction for you to fully understand this and then reflect on it and then to practice it. So you can't really just listen to one class, read one chapter, and then boom, you're off and running to eradicate the self or the personal existence view and realize non-self. It doesn't work that way. There's oftentimes multiple conversations and discussions that need to happen for you to fully understand this. So let me see what questions you guys have on this before we move on to talking about dissolving the ego as it relates to conceit. So I have a question, David. As we begin our practice, we're all dealing with the effects of the ego. And naturally, we can begin to incorporate our view of the practice and our path into that ego. So do you have any advice on dealing with that? Yeah, it's going to be the same things that you hear me talk about, right? Because oftentimes what happens is as the mind moves into the jhanas and into that first and second and even third stage of enlightenment, there can still be arrogance and pride there, right? Because the conceit doesn't get eliminated until the fourth stage of enlightenment. That's one of the very last things that people tend to let go of. And even as you're letting it go, you feel like it's gone, but you pick it right back up where you can felt like you eradicated ego for six months and there hasn't been any sign of the ego, but then it just kind of slips back in. That's that bad tenant that keeps wanting to stick around. Or like what you're talking about, James, is like starting to identify with I'm a Buddhist practitioner on the path to enlightenment and look at me. Right. And this is why if you've read ahead in the frequently asked questions section of the book, you'll see that I talk in there about not even identifying as a Buddhist because the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Right. The word Buddhist didn't even exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. It wasn't until later that people started identifying with this label of I am a Buddhist, I am a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Muslim. Well, all these labels, if you just get rid of them, that's the best thing you can do because the mind is going to keep wanting to grab onto things about I want to become a Buddhist. And that means I go out and buy all these books and I buy these statues and these beads and certain clothes and now i'm accumulating all this stuff because i want to identify as being a buddhist you actually don't need any of that stuff all you need is a teacher you need the teachings you need a community that's all you really need so all of these labels that the mind wants to latch onto and hold on to just eradicate all of those from the mind don't even think about it as you are a buddhist just think of it as your practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. That's the way I look at it. And there's even different traditions of Buddhism. 
Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, and there's different sects off of all of that. These are all just labels, right? I just consider what I do, even though it's part of the Theravada tradition, in the way that the Theravada tradition is created, what I'm practicing and what I teach is part of that tradition, but I don't even identify as being part of that tradition. All I'm doing is practicing the teachings of the Buddha, and I'm sharing those as a teacher. Even being a teacher, I didn't start calling myself Teacher David. Like you guys, a lot of you guys call me Teacher David. That isn't something that I created. That's something you guys created. And different people call me different things. Some people call me David. Some people call me Teacher David. There's all different kind of names that people refer to me as. And I don't identify with any of those in terms of holding on to them. The only reason why I'm a teacher is because people choose to learn and they're interested to learn, but I don't identify with that as being who I am as a person because I don't think this would ever happen, but someday if I'm no longer a teacher, then you know the mind would be discontent if I held on to that. And at one time in America, I was a teacher and then I moved away from that and started doing something completely different and I no longer identified with being a teacher. But then eventually I moved back into being a teacher again. So you've got to let go of all these labels, all these positions, all these titles. Just know that they're there and that helps other people to kind of know what you're doing in the world, but don't allow your mind to hold on to it. So even though you might say, this is my son by Lan, I know that he's not mine. I might say those words to somebody to make it easy for them to know who this being is that's standing next to me. But the mind itself doesn't identify with any of those labels at all. You mentioned compliments, David, and how with that, those positive feelings that come from being complimented, we should cut those off. And knowing the dangers that can come with being complimented, should we compliment others? There's nothing wrong with complimenting others. It actually is very good for your gamma to share positive words with people. Uh, there's nothing wrong with sharing complimentary words with people. The problem is, is that if the mind becomes prideful and arrogant because of it. So you can't control people to stop telling you that you're a wonderful person or you're such a wise teacher or your teachings have helped me so much or anything like that or you're such a kind individual you can't stop people from telling you those things people are going to tell you those things and you might tell other people those things but what you've got to do is you've got to train your mind not to take pleasure in those things and just to remain unaffected and i'm going to share at the end some of the buddha's words related to this that he talks about this about not allowing this to obsess your mind Thank you, David. Let's go to Basim now. Well, we have two comments from Anastasio and Elizabeth related to Ashish question. Anastasio says, my opinion is, I think the Buddha meant non-reproductive beings. Elizabeth says, according to the Lotus Sutra wrote, the female body is polluted. It isn't a fit vessel for the Dharma. And the female body has five obstructions. The inability to become a great Brahma, Sara, Mara. The fourth is the inability to become a universal monarch. And the fifth is the inability to become a Buddha. Yeah, we studied this yesterday. 
I don't agree that the woman's body is polluted or defiled or anything like that. That's not what the Buddha was saying in that teaching. But we're going to take that offline, Ashish and I. So if there's anyone who would like to contribute to that conversation, just send me a message and I'll make a little message group and we can all talk about it. Well, a question from Nick. He says, Teacher David, how does a practitioner know the mind isn't permanent? The body is easy to understand as we see bodies die often around us. If one can remember past lives, how is it not the same mind? If one knows or remembers some things happened to them in the past, or is it the same mind and it hasn't reached or experienced its impermanence yet in this long course of samsara? Okay, so this connects to the cycle of rebirth that you've got different existences in this whole cycle of rebirth. And right now you're experiencing this human existence which is a completely new body and a completely new mind. But in your previous existences, there were forms and formless beings where you were maybe animal many, many times. That's a form being, but you were also maybe in hell or afflicted spirits or in the heavenly realm at different times in the formless realms. Each of those beings have their own consciousness. And those consciousness at the end of each life there are residual memories that get transferred from one being to the next. Any kind of residual memories will move from one being to the next, but the actual consciousness itself is completely new. So the way you can think about it is the first existence being existence A is like a cardboard box. Existence B, the existence you have now, is a new cardboard box or a new mind. Any kind of craving or residual memories from your previous lives will be moved forward into your new existence. But in that new existence, you're not going to remember everything from your prior existences, just residual memories. So there's nothing in the mind that's actually permanent. This is why you experience happiness and then it's gone. You experience sadness and then it's gone. Or you have an idea that comes to mind and then it's gone. Right? This is the impermanent nature of the thoughts, ideas, perceptions. The only thing that you can get to which would be permanent in the mind, the mind itself is impermanent, but enlightenment, the qualities of enlightenment are going to be permanent. That is because they're unconditioned. They're not based on any conditions. The reason why sadness and anger and irritability and all these other things are impermanent, including excitement and thrill, is because they're based on some impermanent condition. It's some impermanent or temporary condition that created the happiness, or it's a temporary or impermanent condition that created the sadness. And once those conditions no longer exist, those feelings are gone because they're impermanent, because they're based on some impermanent condition. But in the enlightened mind, the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that I talk about, it's not based on any condition. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. Because the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy it just exists because the mind has been unconditioned. You've cleaned out all the conditions that are creating the temporary feelings, you've eliminated all of those from the mind, and now the mind is unconditioned, or some people call it emptiness. 
This is where the mind experiences permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But in terms of the mind itself, there's nothing that's actually being reborn from one existence to the next. We call it the cycle of rebirth, but a more appropriate way to describe this would be the cycle of new existence. There's a new existence that comes into being with each individual life. So it's really the cycle of new existence. We call it rebirth, but there's actually nothing that's being reborn. It's a completely new consciousness, and it's just residual memories and craving that gets transferred to the new mind. Well, uh, our last question is coming from Anne, so let's go to her. Hi, teacher David. So I thought it was important for me to kind of jot down the difference between personal existence view and conceit. Um, And this is um, two different um, fetters, according to Gautam Buddha. Um, So traditionally, we would, I would club everything as ego, but, um, you know, further breakdown is important uh, in order to train the mind to um, sort of release some of these conditions. Um, So I just wanted to clarify some things with you and uh, make sure that this checks out with you. Um, So I wrote down a few things um, in with personal existence view. and from your description today, it was very helpful. This um, entire class has been very helpful for me today. Um, I found that the personal existence view, self-image, or self-identity, and I reduced the, um, that's like saying you or I, relative and form to the external world. So I almost bring it down to one question at the end, is the physical self permanent from the personal existence view factor point, you know, of, um, of the fetter. And in conceits, I sort of broke down my or mine, and I wrote that it's relative, the, it's an association of the mind to the external world. So you're measuring in comparison points um, and then I reduce that questioning down to, is the mind permanent? Uh, is, does that sound like this is a fair breakdown of um, personal existence view and conceit? You're processing it. Keep thinking about it. Keep processing it. But the way that I describe it is the way that I describe it, but that might not be the way you describe it. It sounds like you're still trying to sort it out a bit. And, and rather than try to do that right here right now i would just encourage you to keep thinking about it and same thing with you nick about is the mind impermanent think about that think about you know what evidence do you have that shows that the mind is permanent because you've had different thoughts that keep coming into the mind those are always impermanent the way you look at yourself is impermanent it keeps changing there's all this impermanence everywhere around us so Keep thinking about it, Manal. Keep thinking about it, Nick. This is a topic that you're going to need to do a lot of reflection on. And during private discussions or future classes, you can ask some more questions. Sure. Well, uh, one more question from Nick. He asks, as far as scents, is this just for colognes and perfumes? Or is it for something, uh, for anything? For example, Christina likes when I have certain 
the odunids and lotions. Uh, me, I don't care what they smell like mostly, but if it's important to hair, is it okay to use hair uh, preferences as a householder? Yeah, so what you're doing is you're training your mind to let go. It sounds like you don't care what scent your deodorant is, but your wife or your girlfriend does have a preference. If I was you, I would mix it up so that her mind doesn't get used to permanence, right? Because if she's always wanting you to smell a certain way, that's her own craving, desire, attachment. And as part of being loving and kind and compassionate, you would like to see the people around you be able to extinguish their cravings. So wherever you observe that people have certain cravings related to you, you can actually practice in a very skillful way to help them let it go. And that's one of the things that I do if I notice people become attached. There's skillful ways that you can help them to let it go. So I hear what you're saying and there's no right or wrong, but in terms of being skillful, if I was you, I would mix it up a bit so that her mind doesn't get attached to a certain scent or a certain smell. But in terms of your mind, it sounds like you've already let it go. Yeah, thanks, Tishon. That's all we have for now. Okay, so let's go looking at conceit. And I've got two slides here that will share with you ways to dissolve conceit. And these are a little bit shorter in nature in terms of what I need to actually communicate. Some of these may actually sound a bit odd to you if or foreign to you if you're not used to buddhist culture or asian culture but the things in asia are the way that they are for a reason right they promote certain aspects of these teachings and they help train the mind so if you've ever been around thai people or been to thailand or anything one of the things that you'll notice is they're always very grateful. They have a lot of appreciation and gratitude. And it's not everybody, of course, because that would be permanence. But generally, what's kind of baked into the culture is this genuine gratitude and appreciation and saying thank you. This isn't necessarily common in our culture to just say thank you to people. You know, we've kind of lost a lot of that politeness. And one of the things that I see in our Facebook group and one of the things that I practice in our Facebook group and everywhere else that I go is always saying thank you and showing kindness and saying you're welcome and things like this. This actually really helps to let go of any arrogance or pride. It also helps to practice the enlightenment factor of energy. That's something that we talked about way, 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 way back. But having this energy or this willingness to do something, oftentimes the mind becomes very complacent and lackluster. We're not interested in putting in the effort to just say thank you or you're welcome or very nice to help you or anything like that. So take the effort and apply energy to do things like just say thank you. Sleeping in a low position on the floor is enormously helpful. In some cultures and some countries, there are manufacturers who make beds that are very low to the floor if you want an actual bed. But some people will just put a mat on the floor or they'll put their mattress on the floor. This is really revolutionary to the mind. Getting up and down off the floor in and out of your bed will really help to ground the mind and become more humble. 
it might feel odd, it might feel strange, it might sound very foreign to you that just sleeping on the floor will actually help to train the mind to let go of conceit or arrogance or measuring or comparing, putting yourself above and below people. But you try it. Remember, the Buddhist teachings aren't about believing anything. It's about learning this, reflecting on it, and then practicing it to see that it's the truth. So don't believe what I'm sharing with you here, but just practice these things and you'll see the truth for yourself that it works. Sleeping on the floor is one of the best things you can do to train the mind to get rid of conceit or ego. And it doesn't happen in just one day or one week or one month, right? It takes a consistent long-term approach to this. So don't put your mat on the floor and say, okay, I'll try it for a couple of days. It didn't work and now you go back to the bed. That's not the way any of this works. It's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that you're gonna see. So sleeping on the floor is outstanding for the mind. If there are certain tasks that you feel are beneath you, like at one time I used to think like sweeping the floor was beneath me or washing dishes was beneath me because at one time I used to make a lot of money and I had employees and I had maids and had people working for me and I would go into the workplace sometimes and I would sweep and I would clean, but my employees would oftentimes not feel comfortable with that and they would grab the mop out of my hand and or they wouldn't let me clean a toilet, for example, because they felt like it was them not doing their job. But that kind of turned into me feeling like this job was beneath me because the more that I tried to do it, my employees stopped me from doing it. Well, at that point, I wasn't practicing these teachings. So my mind became obsessed and this arrogance and this pride came into the mind thinking that these tasks were below me. But when I started to practice these teachings, I realized that that was part of the conditioning of the mind that I allowed to happen. So I started washing dishes and I started sweeping the floor and I started doing these things that I didn't do for a very long period of time. I started actually doing them and it helps to train the mind to just be normal and be humble. One of the things that we have in the society today is Oftentimes people are very interested in teaching, but there's not too many people that are interested in listening and learning, right? There's a lot of arrogance and pride will promote going around and telling everybody else what to do. So the way that you circumvent that and you kind of reprogram the mind is spend time listening to people teach you wisdom without any interest for you to teach them anything right? It's just ask people questions, whether it's elders or even people younger than you. Even my son, eight and a half years old, sometimes he says, daddy, I learned something new today. I'm like, oh yeah, what is that? He'll share it with me. And I'll say, oh, you know what? I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that. Or we have something where he reads a book. And in the past, he used to read a book. And then I would test him on the book to make sure that he comprehended what was in the book. But now I flip that around where after he reads a book, I ask him to teach me three things that he learned in the book. And then usually the things that he's teaching me, I didn't even know. So he's teaching me and helping me to gain wisdom. But at the same time, he's learning himself how to teach and how to share and how to comprehend things. So listen to people, not just elders, but people younger than you too. This will help eradicate any arrogance or pride when you just listen to people without an interest in teaching them anything. Washing people's feet is another one of those things that is just revolutionary for the mind. 
I put it right in there with sleeping in a low position or sleeping on the floor. Here in Thailand, they wash people's feet as a way of showing respect and appreciation and gratitude. It's one of the things that they do on Mother's Day, Father's Day, on your birthday, you will oftentimes wash your parents' feet on New Year's, things like this, as a way of showing this kindness and this gratitude and this generosity or this appreciation to people who have influenced you in your life. Even teachers, students will wash their teacher's hands, pour a little bit of water or pour a little water on their teacher's feet as a way of showing respect and gratitude to their teacher. This is something that even Jesus Christ taught. If any of you guys have ever studied Christian teachings and you wondered why Jesus taught this, this is why he taught it, is by washing people's feet, it eradicates conceit, it eradicates arrogance and pride. And he shared with people, be sure you continue to do this, right? But we don't do that in Western culture. But here in Thailand, they actually do it. So washing people's feet is a wonderful practice for your mind, but it's also a way for you to share with somebody through your actions how much you appreciate them and how much gratitude you have, how much respect you have for them. Because it's one thing to say I love you in words, but it's a whole nother thing to gently grab somebody's feet, gently pour some water over their feet, scrub their feet very gently so your actions will speak much louder than your words. So washing people's feet can just be revolutionary for the mind and kind of making that part of your practice. I'm sure it's gonna feel very, very strange for you if you've never done this before. The first probably 10, 20 times that I did this, it felt very odd for me. And even though I had done it many times, even doing it for my mom and my grandmother, the first time it felt very odd for me. But as I did it, it felt very wonderful to be able to do this. So even though it's going to feel strange and a little bit apprehensive at first, after you do this, the mind will settle into it. And that apprehension that you feel, that uncomfortableness that you feel, that's the craving desire attachment. That's the conceit, the arrogance and the pride, not being comfortable with you getting down on your knees and lightly washing your parents' feet or your life partner's feet or something like this. So as you do it and you feel that uncomfortableness, that's the conceit coming out of you. So do it 5, 10, 20, 30 times and make it part of your life. And if you need to know how to do this, there's different ways to do it. I've got some videos that we've done where my son has done this for us or when I was doing this for my parents here in Thailand, we've got some different videos. I can show you some of the ways that the Thais do it and then you can choose how to do it on your own, but at least you have some ideas. And there, there's probably some of these online and YouTube that you could look at how other people do this as well and decide how you would like to do it. But it will really transform the mind. The next thing is I suggest that you show respect and gratitude to all people and different cultures do that different ways. And you can choose to do that, whether it's shaking hands or you know, rubbing somebody on the shoulder or giving a hug or what have you. Here in Thailand, we why people. We put our hands together and bow our head. During COVID times, this is probably a wonderful way to kind of greet people nowadays. But the way that I think this probably came about is back in the old, old, old times when there was lots of warring. You know, if you came together with strangers, you know, you're kind of showing them that you don't have anything in your hands. You mean them no harm. 
and the top of your head is considered to be the most sacred, most special part of the body. So when you bow your head like that, you're kind of exposing the most sacred part of your body to another person. So by doing that, and many cultures have that as part of their tradition and their culture, it shows gratitude and respect. And rather than just a real quick, you know, why or, you know, you're kind of looking over here, the way that we why is we do it very calmly, very peacefully, looking the person in the eye and then bowing with your head, just kind of a little curvature in the neck in order to greet people, in order to say goodbye to people, to show respect and gratitude. And again, when you first start doing this, it will probably feel odd, it will feel weird, because that's that arrogance and that pride that's there. But over time, it will just become second nature or even first nature to you as you practice it more and more. And then, of course, as we've talked about already, showing generosity, showing loving kindness and compassion, that's going to help empty out this arrogance, pride, this judging, this measuring and comparing. Because if you look at how I describe these qualities of mine in our previous classes, it's exactly opposite in terms of how it remedies the mind to empty out any kind of conceit or what we're now calling as ego. The next part of what I share in terms of letting go of any kind of conceits or arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing is be sure that you eliminate judgment, that as you observe that the mind is judging yourself or judging others, that you cut that off and let it go. If you're sitting at a park and you see people walking by and the mind's tendency is to judge others, notice that and cut it off and let it go. Or if you're noticing you're putting yourself below people, cut that off and let it go. Or if you're sitting at a traffic light and you look over and you see someone picking their nose and you judge them because of that, well, you probably pick your nose too. Why would you judge them for doing something that you do, right? Well, okay, maybe they're in public, all right? But still, when you feel that judgment of judging someone as being unwholesome or comparing somebody as being inferior or superior to you, cut that off and let it go. And over time, when you do that, you'll catch it sooner and sooner. And eventually it won't arise. The mind will just submit and stop doing that. Be kind and gentle with people because it's the right thing to do, not because you want anything from them, but just because it's the nice thing. It's the best thing for you. It's the best thing to cultivate these wholesome qualities of mind. One of the things that we used to do when we were growing up is open the door for people, right? And that's something that we don't see like in a place like America very much anymore. But when you do see it, it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. That person is doing that. So start doing that kind of stuff, right? That stuff was there for a reason. Whether it's a child, whether it's an adult, whether it's somebody who's older or younger than you, don't compare, don't be superior or inferior. Be kind and polite. Open the door for people. You see somebody drop something on the floor, pick it up for them and hand it to them. You're standing in line. You've got just one or two things to check out. Maybe you let somebody else in front of you or you've got a lot of things and somebody else just has one or two things. Let them in front of you. Start being kind and gentle if you're not already in all situations where you're able to practice that. Do that as much as you can. It's going to help the mind stop thinking you're so special. 
and having this arrogance and this pride and let that go and make your goal to be living harmoniously with all people. Make your goal to live peacefully with all people, not to project this arrogance and pride that everyone's got to know who I am. And here I am. I just showed up. Acknowledge me. Right. That's the arrogance. That's the pride. That's the conceit. Instead, be humble, be peaceful, be kind, be gentle, practice being kind and gentle in all situations with those people that are close to you, but also with complete strangers as well. Ask other people for advice and what they've learned in life, right? Even if 90, 95, 98% of what they're sharing with you, you've already heard before and you already know, just listen without trying to prove anything and without saying, I know that, I already know, right? That's the arrogance. When somebody shares some advice with you, if you're like, oh, I already know that, that's the arrogance, that's the pride coming in, that's the conceit. Instead, listen. Even if 90, 98, 99% of what they're saying, you already know, just listen humbly because it's that 1% or that 2% that you hear. You're like, aha, now I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. And that's something that you can take on as new wisdom in the mind. Help others without any expectation of anything in return, right? No matter what it is, there's lots of different options like this. Don't think about what's in it for you. Don't think about what's the benefit for you. Just look at being generous by helping others without any expectation of anything in return. You guys are already doing this, but this is in the book because not everybody who reads the book is going to end up in a class with a teacher. But here, what I encourage people in the book is to seek guidance with a teacher because one, they wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without seeking guidance with a teacher, but also it helps to eradicate conceit, this arrogance and this pride. So the fact that you guys are all engaging with a teacher, learning with a teacher, actively involved with a teacher, just this by itself is really helpful to eradicate conceit or this arrogance. There's many people in the world that are on the path to enlightenment, but all they're doing is reading different books, they're listening to YouTube videos, and they're trying to do it on their own, and they're not really experiencing much success, although they might tell you differently, their mind still has arrogance and pride because they think they can do it by themselves. By seeking guidance with a teacher, the mind is essentially admitting to itself that, yeah, I don't know everything in the world, I need help, right? The ABCs, how to read, how to do math, how to tie our shoes. We had to learn from somebody else. Everything, even simple as tying our shoes. This massive thing, training the mind to enlightenment. How would we ever think that that can be done without a teacher? So it's very important that you continue to learn with teachers. And this is by itself very helpful to not only develop your practice because you're gonna need a teacher, but it helps to eradicate the conceit. Anytime you notice that the mind is interested in projecting arrogance or pride, judging or measuring or comparing, cut it off and let it go. That's part of that upper part of the Eightfold Path. When you have right mindfulness, awareness of mind, and you notice arising arrogance, pride, judging, measuring or comparing, when you're aware of that with right mindfulness, 
then you apply right effort. Right effort is to cut off any unwholesome qualities and let them go and arise wholesome qualities. So wherever you notice any of these aspects of conceit arise in the mind, cut it off and let it go. And then be sure to seek guidance over multiple sessions with a teacher that you're not going to be able to learn this all in classes. Classes are great, books are great, videos are great, but you're gonna need personal guidance and having very specific discussions about things that your mind is considering and thinking about. There's a certain level of detail that we can handle in a public class, but you're not gonna be able to handle everything in a public class. So you know, check in with your teacher once a month, once every two months or something like this, whatever you think. Some people, when they just start out, they usually meet with their teacher once a week or once every two weeks just to get kind of started and then kind of spread it out further and further from there. But you're going to need that personalized interaction of how to take the teachings from the Buddhist teachings and from these books and from these classes and apply it directly in specific situations in your life. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about how to dissolve the ego with very specific practices like this. Let's go to Basim. We'll go over our Zoom questions. We have a question from Nick. He asks, Teacher David, I have a bad back and other things from wear and tear. However, I had slipped in some unfavorable conditions being in the army. From my experience or someone like me, what we have already cultivated the benefits of lying on the floor to sleep from being in the army, being deployed, sleeping in unfavorable conditions, and field training exercises in a tent and or on the ground outdoors, etc. Things like this, I ask because it's not once or twice on a camping trip, but for some, we could have already done things similar to sleeping on the floor a lot. Is it safe to think that this has been already cultivated in terms of dissolving the ego? Right now, I have a nice bed for my back. It is also a shared bed with my life partner. I don't suggest that anyone ever assume that the ego is gone because that can be dangerous. So the only way to know, Nick, is to practice and see, right? Sleep on the floor. It's great that you've had those experiences. I would say as long as you have the ability to practice being on the floor do that and see how it feels and see what you experience you being in the military you know about basic training and boot camp and you know that's part of what those drill sergeants are doing is trying to get rid of the ego of those new recruits that are coming in right breaking them down basic training then they're going to build you back up as part of the training and that's essentially what you're doing to get to enlightenment is you're stripping your life practice down and then you do that for a period of time and then you can gradually build it back up but you have to be very aware of any kind of ego and if there's any kind of ego there we could talk and discuss certain things to see where your ego is but i never suggest ever assuming that the ego is gone and implementing some of these practices or all of them can only be helpful for you. Uh, no more questions for now, teacher. Okay, anything from you, James? Well, I was wondering, David, as we move toward non-self and realizing non-self, do you have any advice on navigating that 
while we also play the role of a self in society, essentially. Yeah, the more that you understand what eradicating the self is, the more you realize that it's not what you may think it is right now. Oftentimes when people hear about letting go of the self-image or the self-identity, you think that, okay, so should I just not care and just walk out into the world not caring? Because that's the mind swinging to the other side, right? Because right now what an unenlightened mind understands is holding on to this self-image and self-identity. And when you start letting that go, then the mind has a tendency to swing to the other side and being indifferent or not caring. And that's not what non-self is either, because that's not in the middle. So you've got to kind of narrow in on what it means to be practicing non-self so you can feel it and know it. So, for example, with me, like I wear all these white clothes just as a very simple way. I used to wear really expensive clothes in the past when I made a lot of money. And then as I started practicing these teachings, I just decided to wear these really simple clothes, $5 a shirt and $5 for the pants. But even now, you know, there's been a situation where I got in a motorbike accident about two years ago and one of my pants got all ripped up and it got grease and oil all over it and stuff like that. And I wore those pants for another few months after that because I didn't really care and I didn't really have money to buy any new ones, even though they were only five dollars. So I still wore those pants for a very long period of time. But there was still a point in time where I was like, yeah, it probably makes sense to get rid of these pants and get some new pants because for me I didn't care how I look to people but going out into the world other people have certain perceptions of what they consider to be wholesome or unwholesome and while I don't care what I look like or what clothes I'm wearing it only makes sense for me to show up to certain places looking somewhat presentable if I showed up to certain places with ripped up pants and oil and grease on the pants those people might feel uncomfortable, which it's their own doing, but it just makes sense to kind of go out into the world looking somewhat presentable. And that's where you got to find that middle. So as you start letting go of the self, you're going to feel that the mind swings probably to this other side where you're not quite sure how to do things in the world. And that's where if we talk about these things on a more personal level, of some of the practices like this that you're implementing and you start deciding to do things like wear simple clothes, for example, and you're noticing something in the mind, you can reach out and you can talk and I can help you to work through that because those are things that I work through also. So it's better to handle those kind of things on a personal level on a case-by-case basis. Thank you, David. Let's get a Manala now. Hi, teacher David. So the point about comparing, comparison, and cutting that off um, relative to um, household practitioners and having partners, romantic partners, um, would you at some point eliminate um, or find the difference between or find no difference between romantic love and love? Um, would the rom- romantic kind of flake off and it's just love at that point because you're at that point not comparing anything? I think so, but it all comes down to how people define romantic love. This is something that James brought up in a recent class is, uh, you know, when I think about romantic love, and this is just me, this, you know, you guys might think of it completely different, but thinking back to the days where that was part of my life, 
I thought about, you know, doing certain things, you know, buying certain gifts, taking this other person certain places to try to appease them or maybe even impress them in a certain way because there were certain selfish desires that I had in terms of sexual contact. And to me, that was what the romantic love was for me. And that might not be how you described romantic love, but to me, that's what romantic love was. And I don't do those things anymore. <laughs> I don't I don't have sex anymore. But if I do something, it's just out of pure interest in seeing others be well and be peaceful. So like today, my son was coming up to see his mom. I was downstairs. I said, you know, give mommy a kiss on the cheek and tell her that's from daddy. And I only did that because I'm only interested in seeing her be well and be peaceful, not because I want anything from her. Right. Where in the past when we were involved in what I would call romantic love, that's not the case. You know, I did certain things and my behaviors, my decisions were motivated out of self-interest and sensual desire, where once you eliminate all of that stuff, then it's just this pure, true love where you're just interested in seeing others be well and be peaceful. So by the time you get to enlightenment, if you and your partner are working on this together, if or when you get to the point where you let go of sexual contact and sensual desire, then you're going to really see true love in a way that you've probably never seen it before, that you're with this partner just because you're genuinely interested in seeing them be well and be peaceful. You want absolutely nothing from them. All you're interested in is seeing them be well and peaceful once you eliminate the sexual contact. Now, there's going to be glimpses of that along the way while you're still maintaining sexual contact. But once you fully eliminate that from your life practice and you eliminate it from the mind, you'll see real true love in ways that you haven't seen it before. But as long as there's a desire for sexual contact, then there's still craving desire attachment in the mind and we still want something from this other being even if it's just sexual contact, and even if that other being wants it too, it's still a want, it's still a craving, it's still a desire, and it's still impermanent. You're not going to be able to get it every time you want it, and that's why it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. So once you finally eradicate that from the mind, you'll be able to see, I think, a little bit more clearly that maybe the way that I look at romantic love and true love, that yes, I agree, Manal, that eventually it just becomes completely true love where you just are interested in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. Thanks, David. That's all the questions we have. Okay. So there's this part in the book that I put of the Buddha's words to help you see him kind of talking about a bit of what we were talking about today. There's lots of places where he talks about non-self and there's lots of places where he talks about other things but this is just one particular teaching that I put into the book of volume one. But then once you get into volume two through 13, you'll see a lot of these other teachings related to non-self and all these other things that we were talking about. But let me just read this one for you. Gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an arahant. That's the title of this. An arahant is an enlightened being. The Buddha says, monks, Gain, honor, and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a monk 
who is an arahant, one with taints destroyed. So that's somebody who's eliminated the ten fetters. He's saying that gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle, even for an enlightened being, someone whose taints are destroyed. When this was said, the venerable Ananda, one of his close students, asked the master teacher Gautama, Why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle, even for a monk with taints destroyed? Right? Because Ananda's kind of confused, like, hold on a second. If they're enlightened with taints destroyed, they've already eliminated conceit in the ego. You know, why is this gain, honor, and praise an obstacle for them? They're already liberated. They're already enlightened. So the Buddha clarifies. He says, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind, meaning he's already liberated. The person's mind is already enlightened. The Buddha is not saying gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle because his mind's already unshakable. It's already liberated. But I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those, right? So gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle for you to attain enlightenment. Those peaceful dwellings in this very life, which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined, right? So this peaceful dwelling is enlightenment, liberation of mind. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise so bitter, vile, obstructive to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage. Unsurpassed security from bondage is the unenlightened mind is bound. It's bound up. It's stuck, right? It's unliberated. The unsurpassed security from bondage is enlightenment, that the mind has been freed from this bondage. So the Buddha is saying that gain, honor, and praise are so bitter, vile, and obstructive to achieving enlightenment. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, praise, and we will not let the arisen, any arisen gain, honor, and praise persist. Don't let it continue obsessing our mind. That's where he's talking about cutting it off and letting it go. Don't let gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing the mind. And then he says, thus should you train yourselves. So wherever you notice that your mind is wanting gain or honor, praise, respect, admiration, you're looking for that from your family or your friends or your coworkers. You can't let that persist obsessing your mind. Because that's the mind craving for those pleasant feelings. You've got to let that go, cut it off, and just reside in the middle. Right? It's going to feel strange. It's going to feel odd if you haven't done this before. And you may have a hard time doing it when you first get started. But with that breathing mindfulness meditation and that generosity being consistent, generalized practice, as these are arising in the mind, it'll get easier and easier to cut it off and let it go. And then the very last thing that I will share with you is what I was sharing with Nick and all of you guys earlier is in order to truly eradicate the ego, you must get to the point where you always and forever develop your practice to eliminate the ego and never assume that it's been extinguished or it's been eradicated or eliminated. 
because what's going to happen is you're going to eliminate a certain amount of the ego and it's going to look pretty good and things are going to be going pretty nice for you and it might be three months six months a year but then you're feeling so prideful that the ego kind of creeps its way back in and you don't realize it the ego is kind of always there looking to get its foot back in the door just like that bad tenant the bad tenant doesn't want to leave and every time you kind of convince it to leave and you think it's on its way out the door and it's packed its bags as soon as you turn your back boom it slips right back into the house so what this is talking about is don't turn your back on the ego thinking that it's gone because it's going to keep sitting there being arrogant being prideful continuing to tell you that it's gone when it's really not so as you're experiencing these different jhanas and these different stages of enlightenment and you notice the concentration and clarity of mind and awareness of mind is starting to come into the mind don't allow that to produce arrogance and pride because as soon as you do that's going to hinder you and inhibit you from the attainment of enlightenment it's going to make it difficult for you to continue to progress eliminating all those fetters conceit once that's gone that's when the ego is fully dissolved so when you get into that first stage of enlightenment personal existence view is gone but conceit is still there and it's usually not till the very end where that starts to slowly dissolve and get eradicated so don't turn your back on the ego thinking that it's gone in fact if i asked you the question right now do you have ego do you have ego if your answer is no you don't have ego then you have ego because that's the ego trying to convince you that it's gone so if anybody ever asks you do you have ego or if you ever are thinking yourself is the ego still there has the ego been gone never convince yourself that it's gone just always assume that it's there and wherever you notice any kind of arrogance or pride or judging or comparing or wanting to project this self-image or this self-identity just cut it off let it go and train the mind to be humble and peaceful consider yourself to be a nobody to be nothing and this is completely opposite of what we've probably been taught your entire life our entire life we've been taught to leave our mark on society that we've got to be somebody we got to stand up and be heard we got to leave our mark on society well where has that gotten you and where has that gotten anybody in the world right that's just going to keep the craving and desire continuing so what you've got to do is get to the point where you maintain your confidence but you just consider yourself a nobody if you looked at the planet earth from several miles above the earth all of us human beings we look like a bunch of ants running around like a bunch of ants we run to work we run to home we go to the store we go shopping we spend time with friends we do some work here we try to improve our house we try to improve this try to improve that we're just running around like a bunch of ants after all this craving chasing all these pleasant feelings trying to be somebody special in the world leaving our mark of society but truth be told 100 200 years from now nobody's going to know who you were nobody's going to know that you even existed right it's just not going to happen it's not possible can you name anybody from 100 or 200 years ago 
probably very few, right, on your hand. But think of the billions and billions and billions of people that existed over the last 100 or 200 years. So stop trying to be somebody and just be nobody. It's actually quite liberating and peaceful to just be nobody. It's a lot of work to try to keep being somebody. Because in reality, all we really need to do is sustain our life. We just need some food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. And that's all we need to sustain our life. But if we keep craving, craving, craving more and more and more, then this is just the ego wanting to leave our mark on society. But just be a nobody. It's quite wonderful just being a nobody. So that's everything that I had to share with you guys today. I guess I'll open up for just one final round of questions. If there's any questions, see what you guys have to ask. You were mentioning that sense of if we were looking from space, and it reminded me that astronauts have often reported that when they go to space and they look on the Earth, they report exactly what you were mentioning when they see all of Earth and imagining the billions of people. Yeah, if you've ever been in an airplane and you've looked down, I mean, when you're coming down out of the sky, it just looks like a bunch of ants. All the cars running around, all the people running around, just looks like a bunch of ants. And if you think of yourself that way, that you're just one of a billions and billions of ants, then that can help to eradicate that some of that arrogance and pride and that judging and comparing. Just think of us all the same. You know, do you think one ant looks to the other ant and be like, you're not caring enough. You need to be caring more. Why aren't you carrying more back to our nest? We need your help. You're not very wholesome, are you? Ants don't do that, right? So just consider yourself like an ant, even though you're becoming a human being and a better and better human being. Oftentimes we can look to the animal world for cues about ways that we can function a little bit better. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha used animals a lot in his analogies, because it's the natural world. And the natural world tends to function more naturally. And it's this consciousness, it's this ego that wants us to be so special that creates this pollution in the mind and produces all this unskillful conduct and unskillful behavior. And once you start eradicating these, this pollution of the mind, then your mind will be able to exist with ease and with peacefulness and contentedness that you've never known before. Thank you, David. I'll turn it over to Boston now to wrap up our questions. Well, Amin has a question. So, even in enlightenment, one should assume the ego is present? When you're enlightened, you shouldn't even consider yourself enlightened at that point. You'll know that the mind is enlightened because you've gone for several years without any discontentedness. And the mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy you'll know that the mind is enlightened. But I don't suggest that you ever convince yourself of that because that's where it can become dangerous, where the arrogance and pride can come in, or sometimes the mind can become sluggish. And if that happens, then the mind's not enlightened. Or you can become very excited that, oh, wow, look at me, I'm enlightened. Well, an enlightened being knows that there is no I. So I can't be enlightened. The mind isn't experiencing any discontentedness any longer, but as soon as you think that I am enlightened, then that I am is the conceit coming into the mind, thinking that there's a real I here, where in reality, all that's happened is you've essentially trained the mind 
over multiple years to eradicate all this pollution. The mind can be enlightened, but I can't be enlightened because there is no I, right? But even convincing yourself that the mind is enlightened can be dangerous because it can become sluggish, it can become excited, it can become arrogant or prideful. Instead, just always consider yourself on the path, there's no finish line, and you're just gonna continue to gain more and more wisdom as you progress on this path. Well, uh, one question from uh, Anastasio. He asks, is getting an education or any type of similar education up to a PhD has anything to do with ego? It depends. You can't say that, okay, everyone who has a PhD has ego. You can't say that because that would be permanence, right? Everybody pursues things for different reasons. Someone can attain a PhD without ego. There's people that do that and there's people that have done that. So we can't say that just because someone is pursuing a PhD or they're pursuing more education that it's automatically the ego that's doing that. So we can't label things that way. We can't judge things that way. There are people who pursue PhDs out of ego, but there's some people who pursue it out of an interest to acquire more education so that they can help themselves and help others in the world with their education or just an interest to be more educated. So we can't really make those broad brush assessments like that. That's not something that we're really able to do because each individual mind is functioning in their own unique way. Well, hey, that's all the question we have for today. So thanks our teacher for your time and your help. Okay, you're welcome. So I appreciate you guys learning and continuing. I know we're a little bit over our normal class time but this is a big topic and something that really needed to be fleshed out and explored and discussed. So you can listen to this back more than one time. You can read the chapter. You can listen to other talks that I've done on this same topic. You can reach out for personal guidance. You can ask questions in the Facebook group to further clarify this. This is a really big, big, big topic and you're gonna need to explore it more than one time in order to fully understand it and to actually practice in a way to eradicate it. Next Sunday, we're gonna be in chapter 17, which is eliminating fears. Are you really scared? We're gonna talk about the elimination of fears and that actually connects to the self because that personal existence view, that oftentimes is why there's fear in the mind. So now that we understand the personal existence view, we can move into talking about elimination of fears because these two things are actually connected in some ways. So that's what we're gonna do next Sunday. It's a fairly short chapter to read and it's a lighter discussion, but there's specific things we do in order to eradicate fear from the mind. And I'm gonna share those things with you of how to eradicate fear from the mind. And then on this Wednesday, we're gonna be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as a group like we do on our Wednesdays. So have a lovely rest of your day, enjoy whatever you do, and I'll see you in one of our future classes. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.